Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the Barney to my Fred, Brandon. <laughs> yes, I like that one. I'm, I'm, well, a, fan, look, I'm a fan of the Flintstones. <laughs> <laughs> that was your suggestion, A. True. And B, um, I cannot believe we haven't used that one yet. I can't believe we haven't used that one either. That was one of the first ones I came up with when I did a quick Google search. We're going to have to stick with this theme for a while of uh, cartoon sidekicks because it seems like every every great cartoon character has a sidekick. So I think uh, that should that maybe it take us for a few months here. Oh, absolutely. And if we're if we're dealing with 80s and 90s <laughs> cartoons or anything around that era, I can I, I, I can get those. I understand those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah a lot of them they won't show anymore you know yep. they won't show tom and jerry because it's too violent uh they won't show underdog because he got his secret powers from a pill that he <laughs> kept in his ring remember that yep <laughs> it's, it kind of so, seems that way for almost everything that was made pre-1998 <laughs> yeah no longer appropriate a yep. lot of it well, how are you doing, buddy? You you ready for uh, ready for the snow to melt? Yeah, I'm ready for the snow to melt. I'm just waiting for another round of snow to come after that, just because. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like at this point, I'm like, well, it might as well just snow some more so we can break into the top five all time snow depth winters. You know, absolutely. Let's shoot for records. Eight is. Eighth, eighth most snow. That's boring. We need eighth top five. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, let's get in the top five. Let's get in the top. Five. <laughs> oh man, it's uh, at least the sun. We went so long without seeing the sun. I'm just happy to see the sun and uh, get that vitamin D. Yeah, I'm going to Seattle next weekend for a little conference. That I'm sure if people followed me on uh, on the socials, they know about that. I'm um, teaching an online course. I probably haven't really ever mentioned this, but if you go to my website, reverendhunter.com, you can sign up for my email list. Uh, I rarely send emails. Uh, I sent one today. It was the last time I sent one was over a year ago. So I'm not going to be spamming you with emails if you sign up for my email list, but uh, you will get updates on stuff like da 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 da. That's my sound effect, Brandon. That's a really good one. How do you like it? Yeah, that's really good. Da, 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 da. <laughs> my new book, which is going to come out in a year, uh, and you hear me refer to several times during the course of this podcast. But, yep, that's going to be pretty exciting. And, yeah, we got some. I've got some good guests lined up coming up. And, anyway. That's awesome. Uh, Seattle is free to go over. Yeah. Seattle is one of my favorite cities, so that's, that should be a good time. I love it there. And guess what? Uh, I looked it up today, and it's going to be raining while I'm there. <laughs> hey, that that's normal for them, all right? It's springtime. That's I what, know. That's what happens. <laughs> shocking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. shocking. <laughs> oh, well, it was a great reunion for me to get back in touch with Checka Parks. She's the guest on this episode of the Reverend Hunter. She is a butcher. When I knew her, when we went to the same church 10 years ago, she was not a butcher. Uh, she has since become a butcher and fallen in love with it. She went on her first hunt. Uh, I went to one of her lamb breakdown processing classes where she teaches butchery to people. Um, we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot in common. We track her faith journey through church and stuff like that, but then her journey into butchering. And it's it's great. She's just a dear friend whom I had not seen in many years and, and was happy that uh, Mark Norquist of modern carnivore fame put us back in touch. So um, yeah, Brandon, you even came. We, we Back old school, we did it in person in the living room. That we did. That we did. And she was such a cool guest. It's, it's kind of inspiring for, for me a little bit because she's around my age, give or take a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And uh, just the fact mm -hmm. that she's getting into butchery this later in life is really, really cool. I don't know. It's kind of inspiring in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, her classes, like I said, I've been to one. She probably teaches about a class a month. Chicken breakdown. She's doing a hog 
butchering class here in the next week or two. Um, she does these lamb classes. She's going to do a, a deer class, I'm sure, down the road with Mark. And I'm going to try to help her hunt a deer in the fall. And uh, she did go hunting. She did not shoot a deer. Um, but I hope to help her do that uh, coming up. And we'll have her back on at that point. But for now, um, I think you all will love the conversation that we have. She's a wonderful person. She's somebody you should follow on all the socials. You can look her up at uh, Minneapolis Meat Collective. And you'll find her website. You'll find her on Instagram where she posts a lot of awesome content. I, I really encourage you to follow her. Um, and of course, thanks for following this show. Love it. If you would review it, give it a five-star rating or a thumbs up and uh, post about it if you want. Share it with your friends. I do love listening. I mean, sorry, I love hearing. I, ho I hope you love listening. And I do love hearing from those of you who listen. So uh, drop a line sometime. And without further ado, here is my conversation with my dear friend and butcher and owner of the Minneapolis Meat Collective, Cheka Parks. Hey, Cheka, welcome. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for coming to my house. You bet. Um, Cheka's a funny name. <laughs> Where the is it your is it your maiden name? It is. Yep. Were you called Cheka before you got married? Yes. Probably. People just called you by your last name. Yeah, I was a track coach. Ninth grade. A track coach just called you by your last name. He was also Czech. And he was like, I know Czech. I know Cheka. Cheka is Czech. And then he just called me Cheka. And then all the sports I did. And Everyone then when I became a camp counselor, just the name I went by. And I turn turns out it's like a gender neutral name. Is it? Like before it was before it was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a gender neutral name. But yeah, Czech is just it's stuck. And then it's just stuck. It's by, Middle name, like legally. Oh, it's your it's middle my, name. My now, but it was your maiden name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Teresa. Did you go by Teresa name. before or Terry or what people call oh, you? Oh, God, not that? Terry. <laughs> Once it in the 90s, <laughs> Terry is like, only my grandpa could call me Terry. Okay. Um, I'm named after my grandma, Teresa. And really, Teresa's only like mom, dad, legal documents. Mom and dad, though. Mom and dad. Siblings? sister yeah and what she call you Teresa okay <laughs> yep because they're all Cheka so right, like right, it's, right. it's weird for did you them. grow up in Minneapolis um a little bit in Minneapolis a little bit in Florida and a little bit St. Paul West oh, St. really mm -hmm. I spent fourth grade to 12th grade in West St. Paul West Side mm. Mendota area and then because when you think about Czechs you think about Northeast totally you know right yeah and my whole, the whole Cheka family's from New Prague, Montgomery, which is like Czech country. Oh, yeah. I, I umpire a lot of baseball down there. New, New Prague's got a beautiful town team, uh, town Do they? ball. Okay. Yeah. yeah, we would have a lot of Cheka gatherings down in New Prague. Oh, cool. So that's where they all, they came over from Czechoslovakia, settled there in the late 1800s and stayed. And then okay. moved up to Bloomington at some point. Um. If listeners can hear the chewing in the background, that's Crosby <laughs> chewing on a um it's a it's an antler shed from a white-tailed deer that I actually found while pheasant hunting with Scott Franzen, uh, who is on the Flush podcast and is the host of the one of the hosts of the Flush television show. Mm -hmm. This is just a little tangent checkup, mm -hmm. but he filmed an episode of the Flush television show with me and with my buddy Jorge and, and some other guys. And um, that'll be on the Outdoor Channel next September, and then it'll be on YouTube about a year from now. But uh, Crosby's in that, starring in that show, along with his dog, Millie. But we did find that shed, and I don't know if it'll make it on the show, but at one point... Uh, and Aaron was filming, and I walked up to Scott, and I said, oh, you're not going to believe what's in my game vest. I'm like, reach back there. And I, he thought he was going to go out and pull out a pheasant, and he pulled out a antler of a deer. <laughs> so Perfect. if all this to say, if you're listening to this podcast, and you see that episode a year from now, mm -hmm. and there's an antler on it, 
That's what you are hearing in the background of this podcast. <laughs> Crosby comes. chewing on an antler. Uh, uh, anyway, great. we're going to get in more into venison and cutting them up. Um, but uh, did so you didn't you by by the time they were left they had left New Prague by the time. Oh yeah yeah you, yeah. Uh, you were, yeah you all most of my family I have like thirty something cousins and a bunch of oh, aunts dang. and uncles and. There's a lot of family around. They're all a lot of them are in the Twin Cities. What kind of food uh, at those Czech gatherings did you eat? Um, Isn't there like a kind of like um kolachkis? Yeah, what's kolachkis? So like, Is it it's a pastry? Are like a little like you picture the Hawaiian king's rolls, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah, sort of like that, but it's filled with dates or poppy seeds, oh, sometimes plum, kolachkis, pierogies, pasties, chicken uh-huh. and dumpling. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't there a lot of, there's like a dumpling, pretty popular dumpling thing, like dumpling dish. Yes. Where it's just like dough dropped in yep. broth with chicken and whatever. Yep. Chicken, veggies. Uh-huh. But my family wasn't part, like, I don't remember culinary being like a thing. Oh, they really? just ate out of bags and boxes. and. But I there see. was a great meat locker down there. So I went back as an adult not that long ago to visit my great aunt. And? Went, went around the meat locker. Is it still there? Still there. Small little Montgomery meat locker. It's just like as small town as as small town as it gets. And they um is that a kind of a place where they'd process your deer for you? Yes. If you if you need it, if you yeah. outsource that, which I don't recommend. I mm-hmm. think everybody should process their own deer. Right. But we're gonna get into that. Um Yeah. yeah. Well, I've been you're a butcher. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about butchering. Right. Because I've been writing about butchering yes. uh, in, in my forthcoming book, which now my poor podcast listeners are going to hear me talk about this darn book every episode <laughs> for the next year. I've heard it takes over your brain and your internal landscape when you're an author and you're writing. That's a good point. It really does. I've found that um, there's an interesting thing where now when I'm upstairs in bed and Courtney reads for hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I usually fall asleep pretty quickly. But I'll be reading, and then I'll think, okay, what, I want to stop reading, and I'm just going to lie here because I want to th- be thinking, as I fall asleep, I want to be thinking about what I'm going to write about tomorrow. Yes. Because then I get up very early, like 4, 4.30 in the morning, and then st- I'm writing by 5. Mm-hmm. And I just want that kind of like a, a runway. Yeah, it's meditation. Of those ideas. Yeah, you totally. know. Um, it's even way more when I write fiction that then it's it's absolutely I can't think about anything else. But nonfiction's mm. a little different. But um, yeah, and you have your own butchering experience with wild game. Pheasants yeah, I've done here. a lot of it. I don't know if you got it. I sent you that chapter. I don't know if you got a I chance. Did. to Did I don't want to say much because I don't want to. Oh no, you can say what, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> it's a draft, and who knows how much of it. But we we can get into that. But I'd love to know before we even get into that. When you did you grow up? Well, you think of the Czechs and like the, the Northeast, like Marianite right. Catholic or Orthodox or yeah. something like that. What version of Christianity did you grow up in? You know, my dad grew up Catholic, went to Catholic school, nuns, the whole bit. Mm-hmm. Left it in a hurry because mm. he hated it. Okay, and it was stifling and all the things. My mom grew up Lutheran. Norwegian. So my dad's 100% Czech, mom's 100% Norwegian. Okay. They both stayed within their Catholic and Protestant um, backgrounds and communities mm-hmm. until my parents' generation. Then the intermarriage happened. Um, so when my parents got together, there was no strong church okay. affiliation or background. Um, it was sort of like auxiliary, you know, Easter, Christmas. Yeah. I went to like church lock-ins because it was cool and friends were doing it. I went to... Lutheran Bible camp because my friends were going and, but it wasn't a big part of my life. Okay. Um, my, the short story is that I went to a young life camp after Which one? high school. Um, the first, I've been to multiple and I was also a counselor at a bunch. Oh, okay. So Crooked Creek in Where's Colorado. That? Colorado. Okay. Frontier and Crooked Creek were the two in Colorado. Frontier I've been to. Yeah. Amazing. I know. Yeah. That place is incredible. Yeah. So, I became a Christian at Young Life Camp. 
I'm like, you, that classic You just did square quotes, scare quotes. I did. Listeners can't see scare quotes. Just <laughs> I know. I became a Christian. I, Why is that in scare quotes? I think because it feels so, like I was sort of a little mini celebrity and I'd like go around and share my testimony at yeah. golf fundraising events and and it all was very young real life to banquets. Me. Young life banquets. Yeah, at the time totally. there were no scare quotes around it. No, it meant a lot at the time. But I think when I look back on it, I was like, you know, I probably always had a faith in a spirituality. It just like fit into this young life box. Um, so I mean, then, if, I, if people don't know, young life was. I I grew up in a youth ministry in a church here in Edina that was fashioned after young life. Totally. It was meant to be just like young life. And when I was in college, we started a junior high camp and we mm. quite literally used the schedule from Castaway, a young life camp. <laughs> right, totally. We were just, tr- we were co-opting everything because yeah. we're like young life. Young life is an organization that as it turns out, I mean, I don't think you and I would have known this at the time when we were kids, but mm-hmm. is very theologically conservative. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't come across that way. It mm-hmm. comes across as very fun, kind of culturally relevant for totally. high school kids. Um, one thing, like every Young Life resort gets two ski nautique boats every other year. Yeah. I mean, and there's a smoking pit. I remember that being like, oh, this is cool. There's a smoking pit at every camp. Because they let kids smoke. Because they let kids, like, they want all kids to be there. Yeah. And I was one of those kids. You know, I was coming off of. A, like tumultuous senior year. I was not at mm. all. And then I was like, sweet, I want to see the mountains. I love wild places. I was like so ready to get out of Minnesota. Huh. So then this friend was like, hey, we're going to this camp. You want to come? And I was like, is it in the mountains? Yeah. How much does it cost? Well, it'd be free if you apply for a scholarship, blah, blah, blah. And I, I just wanted to see the mountains. Wow. That was the reason I yeah. went. And then I okay. like, my mind was blown. Well, they're, they're, they're famous for also having their, they don't call them camps, they call them resorts. It's true, because it's like primo and property. And they're in incredible places. In fact, yeah. the guy, who, the last podcast episode I did. Um, I listened to him. Adam? Adam. Was at Malibu. Uh, beyond beyond yeah. Malibu. Beyond so Malibu. Amazing. Which is like, that's, the, that's like the premiere of all camps. And then there's this outback experience you go do yeah. that's like the equivalent of Outward Bound or Knowles or something like that. Oh, it's just totally. a Christian version of it. Yeah. So you kind of got turned on to that. Now, were you already going to Bethel? Nope. Okay. Bethel came later. Okay. So what I think, you know, I graduated from high school, went to Young Life Camp. I was going to join the Air Force. Oh. So interesting history caveat, and you'll get this. You know, I was a 9-11 senior. I was a senior in high school when 9-11 happened. Okay. It, like, rocked our class. I bet. Um. So a lot of us that were not applying for colleges, I never thought I would go to college. Like it wasn't imprinted on me. No one in my family before me had gone to college, at least not on my dad's side. So it wasn't really like an option. Maybe I was going to go to Inver Hills or Normandale, but and then 9-11 happened and there was a huge push to join the military. We had so many recruiters at our high school and for kids that were in like my income bracket, like military was how you got to go to school for free yeah so i was like oh maybe i'll join the air force (laughs) but i did not give up drinking or drugs so i could not do that okay um and then summer after graduating went to this camp and then came back and became a young life leader right away and i just stayed working at b-dubs in west st paul staying living at my mom's house did you quit drinking and drugs i'd quit it took some time, but I quit all that. Because of your conversion experience. Basically. Wow. And, you know, I think there was a f- three reasons. When I think back on it, I can, like, bring it down to three reasons. Like, I had a lot of broken relationships. Mm. I needed positive role models. I needed a positive community. I needed people who were loving and gracious and forgiving. Um, and then I think I just needed, I needed a faith. I needed to believe in something else. Mm. Um, so those three things kind of all came together at that week at camp. And I had like great role models. And then I was able to go back to my high school and recruit kids for Young Life Camp, which was like, you know, I'm like doing partying and doing all this other stuff in this other category of a high schooler. And then I come back a year later. It was a really bizarre. Yeah, I bet. And I had to be really brave. It like put me yeah. out of my comfort zone hugely. And I learned a lot from being from that year doing Young Life and then leading kids. So then I was a counselor wow. and then I worked on staff at Castaway 
And then I went the next summer and worked in California at a camp. Which camp was that? Um, Oak Bridge. It was Wildlife, which is like the junior yeah, high. Yeah, I went to that one. Young life. I took Did kids you? to Oak Bridge when I was at junior San high. San Bernardino County? Or yes, when I was a youth pastor at, at a covenant church. Okay. I took kids. We had like a wildlife church partnership yeah. thing. Wildlife with a Y. Yes, with a Y, totally. <laughs> Wild spelled with a Y. So the summer of 2004, I was working at Oak Bridge. Okay. And then I stayed in California that summer, and I thought I was going to live in California the rest of my days. I no did kidding. not want to leave. I freaking loved California. Oak Bridge. But I moved to Northern California and lived in a small town called Quincy. Okay. And then at that time... What, what I, drew you there? Oh, I was just like... A guy? No, no, I just... You just moved to a small town in Northern California? I followed a fellow staff member. She was like, hey, I'm moving to Northern California where my sister lives in this small town on the Feather River. Do you want to come? It's in the Sierras. And I was like, "Um, yes, please. Wow. So I didn't go home, but I had Bethel on the brain, right? I had applied to Bethel at this point. I was two years out of high school. I already did Inver Hills. Um, I had Bethel or Bozeman. I applied. Those are the only colleges I applied to. All right. I got into both. So I was either going to do anthropology at Bethel or geography at Bozeman. And that summer was when I was deciding. And I decided to come back because I had a little baby sister who was eight years old. And oh I was like, goodness. I can't imagine not being around while she but grows Bozeman. up. Bozeman. I know. I know. It's like, you know, it's like that moment where you <laughs> yes. are making a choice and you realize you don't really realize you're at a crossroads, but you're actually making a yes. decision that's going to determine the rest of your life. That was yes. one of those summers. Yes, yes, yes. I know exactly that feeling. And, and I didn't have any, like I had friends, but I didn't have, I had Young Life guidance. Like people that I met for Young Life were like my role models mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they were mentors to me and they were guiding me through all of that. Um, and then my family was really excited to have me back. And my oh, mom had yeah. graduated from Bethel. So she was oh, pumped okay. that I was going back to Bethel. And our mutual friend, Doug Paget was an anthropology major at Bethel. I know. Doug and I have a lot of similarities. We grew up in apartment buildings, anthropology at Bethel. There's like so many funny similarities between. And you and I know each other because of Doug. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we were going to Solomon's Porch, and you were going to Solomon's Porch. Um, Back in like 2007, which feels like a long time ago. When did you get married? 2009. Okay, so you weren't even married at first. No, when, when we did when that Memphis you. conference where you and Doug were leading and you, Phyllis Tickle was there. Yeah, yeah. Tom and I were dating and we went in no a van. Kidding. We like drove all the stuff down oh, there. Oh, yeah, that's right. That was me and Tom and that's when we first met you and met Shelly and Doug. Wow. Anyway, those are like some of my first memories of seeing you speak mm. and being around Doug and Shelly more mm-hmm. and then meeting mm-hmm. Phyllis Tickle and hearing her speak. Wow. I and think that, that was 2007 or maybe 2008. That would have been, no, that, yeah, that would have been 2008, I think. Mm-hmm. Because we did the Church Basement Roadshow that summer. Yes, that's what it was called. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we, because we had, we didn't even, we hadn't even started in 2007. I don't think we'd even started our little business yet to, to start doing the conferences. And right. then Phyllis's conference was the first one we did in Memphis. Mm-hmm. And wow, I have such good memories of that. Yeah, and Such there was another time. Ron, Rob, Mullins. Oh, What's that? Another. <laughs> I feel like he was Irish or Scottish. Pete Rollins? Pete Rollins. Yeah. I remember yeah, him too. going to hear him speak. Too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I felt so lucky to be there. I it mean, was I felt, an amazing conference. I yeah. felt way in over my head with all these like Christian thought uh-huh. folks and speakers. But So what were you doing for a living in 2007, 2009? You weren't a butcher yet. Were you? No, definitely not. No, I was working for YouthWorks, which is the other parachurch organization <laughs> connection that, that we have. Yep. <laughs> That's There's the right. thing, Tony. I know. And honestly, parachurch organizations were way more attractive to me than church. For a lot of people. You're not alone yeah, in that. Yeah, totally. And especially yeah. during that like late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, like, yeah. So I had joined YouthWorks after some connections at Bethel. Okay. And... And one other interesting thing, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I'd become a Christian in, at 18 or whatever. I'm Scare doing the quotes, quotes again. I'm doing, this, quotes I'm doing again. the quotes again. <laughs> um, in 2003, and then by 2005, this is a year and a half after 9-11, I was in Cairo studying abroad for the Middle East Studies program wow. through Bethel. Wow. So I'd only been a Christian for like a year and a half, and 
I don't know if listeners remember this time, but it was like Bush era, yeah. terrorists, a yeah. um, lot of Islamophobia, Islamophobic mm-hmm. cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, my family had no idea where Egypt was. They did not understand what anthropology was. My dad thought I was going to dig up dinosaur bones because <laughs> I was in archaeology was sort of where he was. Ah. He thought I was going to excavate. And I was like, no, I'm going it's to anthropology. Like... Exactly. <laughs> But I studied abroad for six months in this Muslim country and learned Amazing. so much about yeah. the Israeli-Palestine conflict and traveled all through Turkey. And we had recently talked about this yeah, on a yeah, side conversation. I went to Turkey, yeah. um, and that just like rocked my world. Like I don't think I would ever look at Christianity, Islam the same after yeah. that time. Yeah. Um, so coming back to Bethel, going into youth works, I feel like I've always kind of held the church and Christi- Christianity a little bit at a distance because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it feels so westernized and Americanized and yeah. fits into like a neat package. But I think once I traveled and I saw the history and like the nuance behind the religions there in the Middle East and then how to translate that here at home, I was like, I, I mean, I don't know. Do any of us really know what the hell's going on? Like, no, we really don't. And so anybody no. that had a for sure answer to something or could offer something in a nice little package, I just became more and more disillusioned with that. Yeah. But I did love YouthWorks and that's... Did you, before we move on um, from YouthWorks, did you live on a site or did you work in the Twin Cities office? Office. Okay. Yeah. So I was Did you get to visit any sites? Yeah, totally. Okay, I good. spent three summers doing YouthWorks. Oh, and where'd you... I did a reservation you, which up in Leech Lake. Okay. Um, so I was a site director there for a summer and then I was a site director, which is like a, yeah, whatever, you know, one of the the people that runs the site. I did a summer in Vermont at another rural area. Okay. That was amazing. Loved New England. Loved Vermont. Oh my gosh. Um, and then I did a summer in San Francisco Mm. in the urban, at like an urban site or whatever. And that's when Tom and I were married. You were married. We were a married couple doing oh, San Francisco together. Gotcha. Oh, that's cool. And that's when I found out I was pregnant. <laughs> that Surprise. <summer>. Yeah. <laughs> it was like not planned. <laughs> um okay. I only asked this and it we can transition now to, to what you're doing now and, mm-hmm. and how we reconnected, but um you've read one chapter of this book I'm I'm working on. Um and there's a line in that book in an earlier chapter in which I write Christianity made the most sense to me when I lived on the Pine Ridge reservation. Mm. So those summers that I lived on Pine Ridge, uh, when I was 25, 26, and was 27, two, three summers you were there. Yeah. I mean, I would live there full time for two summers. Mm. And then the third summer I was, uh, visiting some other sites too mm-hmm. um, because then we had a bigger staff and whatever. But totally. the first two summers, all there were were Pine Ridge and Juarez. And like right. I ran Pine Ridge and a guy named Cabot ran Juarez and mm-hmm. Paul was back and forth, you know. Mm-hmm. But the point being, when I look back on my own journey through Christianity and maybe out the other side of Christianity now, mm-hmm. and we, it's something I'd like to hear what you think about that, but... Um, the Indian reservation, that's when Christianity made the most sense. Mm. Because I think every day was, uh, I mean, it, w- it was just like, when I woke up in the morning, I was living in Manderson, South Dakota. When I woke up in the morning, I knew exactly what I was supposed to do that day. Yeah. I like pulled on my pair of jeans. I climbed in my red F-150 that everyone on the res knew as Big Red. Everyone on the res <laughs> knew me. I had my so own box, P.O. box in Manderson. Wow. They gave me a tribal flag. They, they, like at powwows, they honored me and all this. It was just, it made a lot of sense to me. Christianity mm-hmm. made a lot of sense to me um, there. Mm-hmm. And I wonder in that, in those days of service to others. Yeah. What, did you have a similar experience? I mean, it the parachurch, did, yeah. you know, you already said the parachurch made more sense to you than the church. It did. Yeah, I think the service piece Definitely made more sense to me. And where my heart really was at when it came to Young Life and Youth Works was young people. Yeah. So like seeing kids under the age of 18 that were sort of lost and wide-eyed and not sure what's next. Yeah. Um, 
not sure how they fit in their family. That narrative and storyline always made more sense to me. Mm. And being in wild places with them, being yeah. in nature with them, yeah. seeing them outside their comfort zone. Um, my summers at YouthWorks, I dove into those communities, but I always felt like I'm going to leave here in three months. So I don't, I don't want to dive in too much because that yeah. doesn't feel good either. Yeah. To be somewhere. I mean, that was the hard thing of it is that yeah. we were doing stuff that ethically, I don't know that I agree with anymore. Yeah. I kind of like, a you know, 60 white kids would roll onto the reservation mm -hmm. on Monday and yeah. start painting houses and run a vacation Bible school. Yeah. And then on Saturday, they'd all load up and roll out. Mm -hmm. And then a new group would roll in the next Monday. Mm -hmm. And it actually had a lot of wear and tear. Yeah. Just yeah. naturally from having just the having people come in on buses and hundreds of people in at one time. Yeah. Like there's natural wear and tear relationally too. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm really, really fortunate that I'm still in touch with a few people mm. on Pine Ridge, but um, yeah. Well, to pivot, you and I got reconnected. We, each of us in our own ways, stopped going to that faith community mm -hmm. years ago that we'd been to. And then we reconnected because of a, a, a well-known multiple-time guest on my podcast, Mark Norquist, <laughs> The Modern Carnivore. Yep. And because he was telling me about, oh, he's got a butcher friend who's going to butcher, and they're going to get a deer, and they're going to do butcher it in his garage and invite yep. all the neighbors. And then he, <laughs> like, dropped your name. Yeah. I'm like, there can only be one checker. <laughs> there's, no, there's no more checkers. And I uh, came home and I said, remember Checka Parks? Do, do you know that she's a butcher? And Courtney's like, yeah, duh. It's on Facebook. <laughs> and I'm like, we were friends on Facebook, I think, but I didn't really pay yeah, attention. I'm like, Instagram is where I'm, I had I'm done a little bit too, probably a little too self uh, absorbed <laughs> to notice <laughs> that you'd like started a whole new career. I didn't even know what your old career was. So then you and I got reconnected. I'd love to hear what, how'd you get into butchery? Like, Right? What, what was the spark on that deal? Like, yeah, tell us about that journey. I, you know, I'm still uncovering it, but basically I've been in Minneapolis for almost 20 years. And most of that time I've been a member owner of the Seward Co-op. And for me, my avenue towards butchery and learning about meat and learning about farms and local food has been through the co-op movement of Minneapolis, okay. um, which uh, has a fascinating history to it. And my time at Seward as a member owner really influenced how I saw food, how I shopped for food, the value I have around it. So I had always tried to be a part of CSAs when I could. Mm -hmm. Local vegetables, local farmers. I helped out with a few CSAs. And that just sort of naturally translated into meat. And so when a Seward opened up by my house, like six or seven years ago, I was ecstatic. And I was mm. like, that's where I want to work. Someday I would love oh. to work at that co-op. A few blocks from my place. It'd be yeah. perfect. Um, I ended up getting a job behind the meat counter. I ended up loving it. Mm. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. So this would have been six and a half years ago. I started working behind the counter and ended up creating my own little like village vibe where I had like people, cause I, my life was in this little like one mile radius between okay. the Y and my house and my kids' school and where I shop for groceries. And I'm a bike commuter. I have, you know, we were a one car family. I've been biking around Minneapolis the whole time I've lived there. Um, biking with my groceries and the bike trailer and my kids and whatever. So I, because I'm outgoing and social and I like to know people's names and I'm nosy, I just got to know a lot of people and then I became like a face behind the counter. Mm -hmm. And then 2019, I started to really be interested in like working my way back from the dinner plate. So I knew how to cut meat. I knew how to or cook meat. I had been in restaurants my whole life off and on. I had worked at Kitchen Window doing culinary and barbecue classes. You know, I understand cookery. Mm-hmm. So then I went back a step and then I was looking at retail and then I wanted to go back further and look at production, which is where the butchery comes in. And then I wanted to go back further and I was like any farm experience that I could get through the co-op, I was there. Mm. They had a opportunity to go to a kill floor at Geneva Meats. 
Um, so I went there, got to see them do the whole process with killing a steer. I got to be a part of on-farm slaughters. And any chance I had to go to a farm to see the real deal, I hopped on it. And then when I became a production specialist, which is what they call the butcher, um, the pandemic had happened shortly after that. So when all of our lives were going crazy and we had some like really hard things happen within our family during the beginning of the pandemic, um, my passion for meat kind of gave me these blinders where I just dove in. Mm. Any podcast on meat, any like YouTube video, any book, I was just like soaking up the information. And it ended up being that I really took to learning butchery. I took to learning the anatomy, mm. the machinery. I was kind of waiting for like the disgust factor to pop in. And the more I was like breaking apart animals and getting in, like getting my hands in there, I was just fascinated. Mm. And my dad has joked that maybe he should have been a surgeon. I was like, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I would have been okay at that. I don't mm -hmm. know. Um, I, my brother's a surgeon and I've seen him break down a deer and I've heard, I've heard about him breaking down an elk. Oh yeah. And guys are just like, when he, when he, when they, somebody in his hunting party will shoot an elk, mm -hmm. he will, he'll be like, all you guys do is keep my knives shy, not knives sharp and stay out of the way. Cause he can break down an entire elk bull sure. in like 20 minutes. I'm sure. If he has sharp knives. Yeah. So the other guys are like, okay, yep. <laughs> you know, happy to let him do it. So Absolutely. similarly, you could probably break down a human. Yeah. Think about that. Oh, I've thought about it. To. It's weird, but <laughs> I've been rewatching The Sopranos. Okay, and they do that. They right. like they they literally when they kill a guy, yeah. a lot of times they chop him up with a meat cleaver. Yeah, and totally. dispose of the different parts in different places. <laughs> I know. So it's just like you could, you know. I yeah. mean, there might be call for that. I know, or or in the apocalypse, you know. I know. I've listened to a lot of historical <laughs> medieval podcasts, and uh -huh. like being drawn and quartered is something that comes up a lot. Oh yeah. And, yeah. you know, I've joked about, I really do mean it. Like, I want to be the village butcher. But what that means historically means that you're also the village sur surgeon, the village executioner. Right. Like, you're the one with the tools. You get to do all the, the jobs. The veterinarian. <laughs> yes, yeah. you're the vet. You're pulling out the teeth. I mean, that's more the barber surgeon. But yeah, yeah. really, it's like, if you have the sharp tools, like, you're just cutting up anything. Um, so because of my, like, passion for food understanding cookery and then not being, you know, not being grossed out and actually mentally being incredibly stimulated by mm -hmm. the butchering process. And the co-op, I should say this, is a whole carcass program. There are not very many of them around the Twin Cities. Yeah. Um, most butcher shops, like your Whole Foods and your Lunds, are going to be bag programs, which means a lot more of the processing happens before it ever gets to the off -site. store. Off-site. Yeah, yeah. off-site. Now, okay, a, a grocery store like a Byerly's or, or an Albertsons or something like that, do they have their own butchery center or are they, do they have a third-party vendor who's doing the butchering and they're just buying the meat already butchered? They're buying the meat basically already butchered, okay. but you might, like let's say the processor, you know, you have your distributor who delivers it for you. Yeah. But most of the meat, once it leaves the processor, is going to be basically ready for the case. Um, okay. it'll be back sealed, but then all the meat cutter needs to do is open up the package, blot off the blood, repackage or, the it purge, or put it in the cooler, cut it. Yeah. Okay. Because I remember growing up at Byerly's. Sure. Just not, you know, like ha less than a mile from here. Um, when my mom would be like, we'd be shot grocery shopping. She'd like, go over to the butcher and ask him to cut up some dog bones. Yeah. And he would like have the bandsaw. Totally. Yep. And he, you know, how, how long do you want him? Yeah. And a lot of, I don't know for sure, because it's not like I'm going into every Whole Foods and seeing what they have behind. Yeah. But a lot of those places won't have a full bandsaw anymore. Right. I'm guessing they won't. They will probably have meat grinders and they'll have okay. a lot of equipment to do. Value added is where the money's at. So if you go into a Whole Foods... Oh. A lot of what they sell is value added. Which means like a stuffed pork chop or... Yeah, marinated chicken breast, kebabs. Yeah. Now, okay, didn't Fuddruckers used to have whole <laughs> cows hanging in the Fuddruckers? I have no idea. Don't you remember that, Brandon? Do you know never went to Fuddruckers? No, I mean, the I Fud, went to Fuddruckers. You Fud know Fuddruckers? Yeah. Well, I, I swear, when they first opened Fuddruckers, 
That's so funny. The burger restaurant. There'd be whole sides of beef in there, but <laughs> they were only making hamburgers. They weren't selling steaks. Yeah. So why would they have whole sides of beef? They might have been fake. They probably were fake. Oh, I'm God. guessing. It was like a cooler it that would you would be see cooler, when you walked yes. in. I mean, you'd see a hanging, yeah, like a I meat mean, locker with glass maybe. enclosed meat locker. Oh, I wonder if that was all for sure. That would be interesting to look into. I really don't know. I, it's probably the internet has. <laughs> um, but one thing that was really cool about yeah, the co-op yeah. where I worked is we would get a whole steer, a whole lamb um, every week. Mm. So every Tuesday we're unloading and it comes in like a huge pallet, like. We're talking yeah. six to 800 pounds. All three of, of those beef. animals arrived the same day? No, no, no. Okay. Tuesday was the steer, Thursday was lamb, and then we got a whole pig every two weeks. Because people who shop at the co-op eat a little less pork. <laughs> Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. You no, probably sell think... more pork at Cub Foods than you do at the co-op. And... Probably. Yeah. yeah. But we were the place to come for grass-fed beef. Okay. So I got to learn how to break down whole steer which was actually a really incredible experience. I bet. I miss it a lot. Um, but then we also broke down whole lamb, and then we'd have poultry, you know, chicken, turkey, duck, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. all the time. And I am so thankful I had that on-site work apprenticeship because during the pandemic, you know, we were all sort of locked in our homes and quarantined, and then the uprisings happened. And yeah. one thing that I think is very pivotal to my experience is like where George Floyd was murdered, I live a few blocks from George Floyd Square and I worked a few blocks from George Floyd Square. Yeah. When I bike to work, I bike through George Floyd Square. Like that is absolutely a part of the fabric of my community. Mm. Um, and it gave me a really interesting purpose to continue to provide good locally sourced meat to the people that I was doing life with. Yeah. Um, and through all the turmoil and all the hardships, like the co-op tried its best on every front and we were the frontline workers. So then all of a sudden we were, you know, getting paid sort of hazard pay because we were continuing to work in this public setting and they had a line out the door cause you can only let however many people in at a time. Mm. Some point during that summer we had boarded windows because the uprisings were happening and everybody was scared. Yeah. So all of that really impacted my, like the beginning of my butchery, but, and I've said this to you before, but, learning how to butcher and providing that resource for my community really helped me fall back in love with the world, like through butchering. The world. Yeah. Tell me more my about world. that. Well, I think I was so disillusioned and so disheartened um, back in like 2020, along with a lot of us. Mm-hmm. And it kind of felt like the world was ending, right? Like we didn't know what was, what was happening. Yeah. But butchering made sense to me. So in my like, brain and then going into sort of self-preservation mode that made the most sense like i knew every tuesday we were going to get a steer i was going to start breaking down the loin and then we're going to put out that meat and then you know we'd grind the beef and then thursday we'd get the lamb and because we work with local farms a lot of that really did not get disrupted very much nationally the big chains got disrupted more than our Mm. local producers and farmers Mm -hmm. um I know friends yeah. like even our mutual friend Mark. Um, people were like posting on on Facebook and Craigslist, like hog farmers saying, "I've got hogs and I can't sell them. If you'll come yeah. and buy them, but you can't." Like I think it was Mark who said he couldn't kill the pig on the farm. Mm. He had to like the, drive off it the land. off onto the gravel road and then kill yeah. the pig. Yeah. Yeah. There's some law about yeah. that. Not like you exactly can't, ki- you can't slaughter the pig on the, where the pig's being raised, whatever. I don't know. And then Mark drove the pig home and butchered it in his garage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's crazy. There was a lot of animals that were euthanized during that bottle. I mean, time. I do remember seeing piles of pigs, you know. On, right. It's on really grotesque. And very like, sad. Yeah. Real but waste. Mark was, Mark was a really great contact for me to have. Then I actually, know Mark through my butchering buddy who we, we learned to butcher together. Mm. Ronnell did a hunt with Mark. Oh yeah. Ronnell. Yeah. I've seen that on. So that's how I first got connected to Mark and ended up, you know, meeting him was through Ronnell and Ronnell and I both like we spent 7 AM to 3 PM in that production room full time mm. for like the three years during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, like we're tight and we got to know each other really well. And it also was like, okay, you're on my team. We are doing this together. 
Yeah. And then when he started hunting, I was like, oh, hunting. Oh, I could, I think I could do that. And then I was like, ooh. But I have like sort of some feelings about guns and gun violence because I'm in the city and it's such a prevalent part of life. Yes. But I had grown up my whole life fishing. Okay. And, and I. So it wasn't about I, the killing of the animal. No. It was about Which the means maybe of killing. Which makes me sound heartless. But no, no. I think I write about this in my book too. Yeah. There are a lot of people who are like, they can got a fish yeah. or whatever. They have no compunction about killing a fish. Right. Because fish aren't really human. Right. Right? I call it It's the, like I, that reptile or what is, there's like a complex. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you, you anthropomorphize animals yes. and the closer they look to humans, but I, my, I call it the eyelash rule. Like if an animal has eyelashes, people are like, ah, ha, ha, I mm-hmm. can't kill, I can't kill Bambi with those big watery brown eyes and totally. big beautiful eyelashes. And I'm like, eyelashes are just like, uh, to protect their eyes the same way mm-hmm. that fish have lids like, yep. or gills. But of course we have eyelashes. So mm-hmm. it makes it some people like I could never, yeah. I, I can shoot a pheasant, but I could never kill a deer. Right. You know? So it's not about the killing of the deer. It's about the firearm. Yeah. That's a, that that's, was more of yeah. the push for me. Because with the pandemic, like we didn't get to choose whether guns were in our life or not. And that's a really scary thing when you're not a gun owner. You don't really know how to operate one. Mm-hmm. Like neighbors that had them and neighbors that would walk around with them. or people. Because in your neighborhood. People were scared. Yeah. And the encampments and George Floyd and the, and the Minneapolis police weren't really. Yeah. And then there was the National Guard, too, who, had, who walked around with all their. Automatic weapons, yeah. So it just. That felt very different. So you're around. like, if I'm going to protect myself from Bambi, I need a muzzle loader. <laughs> I know. How the heck did that happen? Uh, Do you but, own a muzzle loader? No. You borrowed it. I borrowed it. Because you went on your first hunt, which you documented on, on Instagram. Yeah. And I think because I'm so like thick-headed and, or bullheaded, my mom would probably say, I, you know, this hunt was almost wasn't going to happen multiple times, but I like went and did it anyway. And I randomly had my gun safety or firearm safety certificate from high school because I like went to gun safety hunting camp with a friend. You did. That's so I had shot before and I remember really enjoying it. Um, And I remember having a good shot and like learning how to take it apart and clean it, put it back together. Yeah. But never thinking I would actually use that. Right. So then butchering led to hunting because learning how to butcher wild game and kill my own animal is definitely something that I'm very intrigued by. I'd watched farmers humanely slaughter and kill animals, and then we eviscerated it and yeah. butchered it that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but learning how to deer hunt was something, you know, and Mark's responsible for some of this, like putting yeah. the little bee in my bonnet about it. Like, yeah. oh, that sounded very Minnesotan. After hearing Ronnell's story and meeting Mark, um, turned out that December was the time of year that I could make it happen. Mm-hmm. And talking with hunting friends of mine about the safety of going on my own, one friend said, "Like, well, muzzle loaders are really safe if you know how to use it properly. Like, you it literally cannot go off until that last step." Yeah. Um, and and there's and there's less hunters in the woods. Yes. And quite frankly, if you have some kind of aversion to weapons that are used to kill human beings. Yeah. It's not a muzzle loader. No. It hasn't been for 150 years. I know. That's true because you I know. went, yeah, we went to the gun club and there was a guy with a, is it semi-automatic where it's just like, boom, where you can do one after another? Well, every, any kind of semi-auto, including a couple that are right below you in my gun safe. Yeah. Uh, in the basement. Every time you pull the trigger, it fires around. So as fast as you can pull the trigger, okay. that's as fast as you can fire rounds. Now, in a shotgun, you can only put, you know, five shells in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have plugs in my gun, so I can only put three shells in. So it's boom, boom, boom. But you're right. If you have a high-capacity magazine on a rifle, like an yeah. AR-style rifle, yes. as fast as you can pull that trigger, yeah. you it. It's, so it's a semi-auto, an automatic weapon. Mm-hmm. You hold that trigger down and it fires till you release the trigger. Got and it. that's what you'd have in the National Guard or yeah. military. That's what you see when you think of like AK-47s or whatever. Right. Okay. But the only difference is between 
an AR-15 and AK-47 is that really mm-hmm. that difference is you have to pull the trigger every time. So yes, yeah. at the gun, you go to a gun club and you're going to see people with pistols and you know long guns yeah. who have their semi-autos and they'll yeah. fire a lot of rounds. And my first time going to one, I had to have a dear neighbor, um, Tom, who I also coached with, and he was like, okay, you want to learn how to hunt? I'm going to do for you what someone did for me in my 40s. Like he kind of got introduced to hunting again in his middle life. And I think okay. you can relate to that. Mm-hmm. Like, yep, yep. He had somebody sort of take him under their wing. He was like, okay, you want to go? Well, you need to learn to shoot. So let's go. We went to Oakdale and we wa- he walked me through the whole process. I was pretty comfortable with the parts and how to put it together. I had done some hunting videos that Mark had put out there. We get there and we're the only ones. And I'm like, oh, yes, because I don't. One, I was nervous to shoot in front of anybody else. But then towards the end, you know, I shot twice, felt good about it. But then right next to me, somebody shows up with a semi-automatic and they're like, boom, 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 boom. And I was like, I was so triggered. I was like, okay, I have to go. I can't like, there's no way I can shoot anything. I'm so stressed. And it was just being around it. And I think that for a person who hears gunshots at night or has been around gunshots and has, I haven't seen them, but I've been outside and heard them. Like, it's just too much, too much, too much. But when I think of being in the woods, which, and this is what happened for me, it's I was by myself. I was going to have a hunting partner, but I didn't at the end. It was December. I'm in Changuatana State Forest, just me and the muzzleloader. I feel confident about my shot. I feel comfortable walking around with this. Like I had two, two half days in the woods by myself with the gun. And I was like so content. Mm. And I love being in the woods i love being in nature but i think what is really intriguing for me about learning to hunt is you could go to that next level where i'm looking at tracks yeah and i'm trying to look for you know deer scat and i'm trying to find patterns and and then i'm trying to be quiet but it's really hard to be quiet i was so loud i was so loud it's yeah i was coughing i was like oh my gosh there's not going to be a deer anywhere near me and I did end up seeing a deer, but I learned a lot. And I did it. Like, I just yeah. wanted to do it. And things kept happening where it seemed like it wasn't going to work out. But I And did. I just saw something uh, that, like, nationwide, of all the people who go out to hunt deer every year, mm-hmm. it's like a 34% success rate For of, real? of shooting a deer. 34? Uh-huh. In Minnesota, wow. it's a little higher. It's in the 40s. Okay. The national average is, like, in the 30s. So you're in the majority of people who go out and yeah. hunt but don't actually harvest a deer. I wonder know. if that would have changed my wanting to go do it if I knew it was going to be a 30%. It's funny because another in another cha- – I'm going to be talking about this book nonstop, you guys. So. <laughs> um, in another chapter, I write about going to Colorado on my first elk hunt and knowing that the um, success rate in that zone was 12%. Oh, my gosh. And I does had, that make it more enticing, too? Because Well, it's – Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because I went into that hunt fully confident that I was going to shoot an elk. Mm. And I, like, saw two elk. But you didn't know know that percentage when you went out there. I do. Yeah, I did. I mean, I looked it up because I had to draw the tag and everything. Sure. And pick the zone I was going to be in and all that. I knew it. And it was, but I'm like, but I'll be in the 12%. I mean, that's just like... (laughs) Mr. Like grew up in Edina, totally entitled. I'm like, 12, yeah, 12, I'm in the top 12% of hunters in Colorado. Yes, I will kill a deer. I mean, an elk. No, didn't even like saw two elk from a distance. That sure. Never even. And do you like, need to be closer my... with elk? What's like that? Distance. What's, a, what's the best distance for shooting an elk? Like range. Like well, it totally depends. Where I, w- I was hunting in the mountains, so it wouldn't have been a, if, if I would have had a shot, it wouldn't have been a long shot. Okay. There are people who go, you know, further west or they're shooting more in like high plains. I mean, there are people who can, who will make 400 yard shots. Okay. Of, uh, for an elk, yeah. Sure. Um, and it's a big target. An elk's a big target. Yeah. But I don't really have the right kind of rifle for that kind of long range shooting and sure. stuff like that. I think, you know, I know, I know people who do that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I am so excited to eventually butcher. 
you're gonna kill a deer. A deer. You're gonna well, you're yeah. gonna butcher a deer gonna soon, aren't you? Butcher a deer, hopefully. Okay, we're gonna talk about that before we wrap up here, but you're gonna shoot a deer because even if you don't shoot one at your public state forest, blah blah blah, <laughs> I'm gonna have you just come. <laughs> yes, to come our up property to the land, where totally. there's so many deer. Yes, and, I mean not it's not guaranteed, but no, it's but a lot the more than thirty four percent of you know. Um, which is an interesting and this is a little bit of a tangent but i was a part of a focus group for new hunters on public versus private land access Mm -hmm. and this was people from south dakota indiana missouri missouri and wisconsin and myself and it was really interesting hearing the sort of public versus private land and my like how I ended that whole focus group was saying that like having access to private land is a privilege. Like for most yeah. non-traditional young hunters, like I don't have access to private land. It's only because I know people. Right. That Well, that's the only way any, that's the only yeah. way I have it, you know, and I'm whatever, 20 years older than you or 15 years older than you. It's the only way I have it. Yeah. You so just, over time of- you, you, I mean, <laughs> when I meet people, I ask them, like, I'm sure I asked Brandon when he first told me he was from Southwestern Minnesota. I'm like, is there any land in your family down there? Because <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I'm always looking for an angle. It's yeah. why I started preaching in exchange for hunting. Totally. And I got a preaching gig on opening turkey weekend. So great. In, out by Painesville and invited to turkey hunt on a farm with a guy uh, on opening that. opening of turkey season. So yeah. uh, I'm going to have to exchange butchery services. Yes. For <laughs> no, that's exactly what you should do. <laughs> Well, I've been to a, one of your butchering classes. Yes, through my meat collective. And it was so great. I loved nice. it. I learned a lot, even though I've butchered a lot of deer and they're like just a, a bigger lamb, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's a lot the same cuts and whatever. I was going to ask you, like, sometimes when I hug Courtney and then I'll say, oh, your back strap is feeling very... Do you have to, <laughs> totally. Do you sometimes look at your husband or your kids oh, yes. and think of the different cuts or something? Yes, the hindquarters. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, especially my dog. I did have a dream about butchering my dog. Oh, and I think my I mentioned this to you because gosh. you have a podcast about would you eat your dog. Yeah, I, we have talked about and that. And I yes. had had like, you know, I've had a lot of butchering dreams where I'm just yeah. butchering something. I was like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? And I was like, no, there's nothing wrong with me. I am yeah. like... Literally, uh, you see the anatomy of everything differently. And I think this is what surgeons and medical students have. Like, you just, yeah. you have a different perspective. And I will always look at, I never took anatomy or physiology in college, but I don't think I ever have to now no, because I understand it intuitively with my hands. Yeah. Um, I understand how it works with my knife. And I am absolutely a kinesthetic learner. And I think that's where this apprenticeship really, I took to it because I learned by doing. And there's that Montessori um, quote about what the hand does, the mind remembers. And it's mm-hmm. like one of the um, inspirations for the Montessori school of thought. Mm-hmm. And I think that when it comes to butchery, when it comes to hunting, like doing it is how you're going to learn. And, mm-hmm. and yes, back to the anatomy thing. I will always look at <laughs> all things differently. <laughs> like I thought of a bear. I'm like, I would love to butcher a bear. But then I was doing a lamb slaughter on a farm last winter. Really interesting group of people, two of whom were bear hunters. Mm. And they're like, it's really freaky, actually, because when they're slayed out, they have limbs just like humans. So it looks like. You're butchering a human. Yeah. And like one of them is like, I couldn't stomach it. Like, I just couldn't do it. Mostly because of the like arms and legs situation. I was like, well, that would be fascinating. A moose. I would love to do a moose and an elk, a deer. Yeah. I have a lot of dreams and hopes, but the lamb class. Yeah. Tell me before we go, tell me and the listeners, like, what are your hopes for the Minneapolis meat collective? What, are, what, what do you have upcoming? How can people find you? And yeah, th- and then you're going to come back on after your first year, not yes. after, not after a Mark Norquist acquired deer, <laughs> but after you shoot a deer, after the first hunt. field dress yes. it, hang it, Yes. Skin it, butcher it, the whole process. I would love that. Then we'll yeah. then we'll have another episode where you talk specifically about that, that kind of butchery and what you learned and the cuts and all that. Because yeah. I think it'd be fascinating. But for now, yeah. what are you doing? And you even had an announcement on Instagram today about an, your partnership. Yeah, with um, the studio or the kitchen by my house. Yeah, yeah. so let's. What, what's the Minneapolis Meat Collective? 
So the Minneapolis Meat Collective came after I was inspired hearing about a Portland Meat Collective and then the, the Meat Collective movement throughout the nation. Um, so in my diving into the butchering world, I came across just some real female butchering pioneers, butcheresses, if you will. And they um, were so inspiring to me to participate in something bigger than just my little co-op. Um, so when I left my job in June, wasn't totally sure what was going to happen next. Thought maybe I would manage. That didn't work out. Um, and kept speaking with this woman, Camus Davis, who started the Good Meat Project, which is a national nonprofit organization. Um, and she had sent me a, mini or a meat collective startup guide. I read mm. through it and I was like, okay, I think I could do this. Mm. Why don't I start with chicken, backyard chicken classes with my friends? Did some backyard chicken breakdown classes. Um, ended up liking it. I enjoy people. I enjoy teaching. Um, I have relationships with farmers. I connected to a few other people who are in the business world, did some private events and never really sought out to be a business owner, but that's what's happening. Yep. I'm starting a business awesome. called the Minneapolis Meat Collective. And I started it for three reasons, mainly. Uh, one is I want to put butchers to the front. Like oftentimes butchers are in the back, in the production room, in the slaughter facilities, on the news for mm -hmm. something that goes incredibly wrong. <laughs> um, or in rural areas, they might be in your local meat locker. But most like green eating consumers in the cities couldn't name a butcher. Um, and I think that's by design for most grocery most grocery stores. But I really want to put a face and a name to the butchers. And I think by doing the Minneapolis Meat Collective, I can bring together other butchers I know and meat cutters in the community and give them a name and a face, put them in front of people. Mm -hmm. um so that's one thing uh is putting butchers to the front and another is to give consumers in the city direct access to farm fresh meat and just to offer an alternative pathway mm -hmm. for that there's a lot of good organizations doing this work i'm just one of many right mm -hmm. if you go to a farmer's market you can meet a farmer if you connect with um, minnesota grown you can meet a farmer i'm on the board for greener pastures which is an incredible organization trying to do a farm matchmaking program um, so I'm just another alternative pathway for like a consumer um, farmer relationship that's okay. direct. Yep. Yep. And then third reason is I love to see people's aha moments and you were at that class. So you can attest to what happens when people do it themselves, the hard things that happen, the things yeah. that don't go so well. And then the aha moments of like, wow, I just did that. And that's incredible. I just ground all this lamb or here we are with these bags of meat that we cut. And demystifying meat for people yeah, yeah. Um, is something I'm really passionate about. And also, I think helping the home cook understand that you don't have to be a full-on professional butcher in order to cut meat in your house. You know, when, when I turned 16 and got my driver's license, my dad, uh, you know, two blocks from here mm -hmm. on the driveway was like, You're gonna, I'm going to teach you how to change your oil and change a tire. Yeah. Like, you don't maybe need same. to know about an internal combustion engine, but you should. Now, nowadays, nobody, I mean, kids no. don't even. My, one of my kids, one, I'm one for three on kids that have any idea about how the car, they, they just get in, <laughs> they turn the key. It's like, they don't even turn the key. They push a button. It's like, why, why isn't it starting and just driving me places? You didn't teach your kids how to change a tire? No. Do you I'm remember how to change a tire? Yes. <laughs> okay. I do remember. Um, and... So yeah, it's similar. I think mm -hmm. it's it's just it's just amazing to think about something we do on a daily basis, eat meat, and yet people, most people, don't even own a grinder. I know. You know, um, they don't they don't have they don't do any yeah. butchery at all. So I just think your class. Yes, I one super fun thing for me was watching you teach and watching mm -hmm. everybody in the class mm -hmm. just like people were in rapt attention at everything you were teaching them. Mm -hmm. They were fascinated by it. Right. And I think it's got great potential. Yeah. Cause I'm not doing anything super special. I'm just taking information and like offering yeah. it in yeah. a way that is easy, maybe easy to understand and then letting them touch it. I'm that's like, put I your hands with, in here. That's all I ever did with the Bible when I was yeah, a preacher. Totally. Just take stuff. <laughs> it's available. That yeah. stuff in the Bible is not private. It's, I'm no. just going to preach it to you in ways that are interesting. Yeah. 
and make you be like, oh, dang, yep. light bulbs and, go on. Yes. And I think I'm taking some like notes from what I really loved about the, you know, pastors and preachers in my life that were able to take information that was confusing and not yeah. keep it in that sort of like high minded, lots of interesting vocab, but really just bring it down to yeah. a simple level. Like it doesn't, I don't want to overcomplicate it. I don't need to tell you all the names of the muscles and sound fancy with all these things. Like this is just everyday stuff. Yeah. And one class in particular that I just did, two of the women were talking about how their grandmothers did this and they want to learn these skills. And I think with the pandemic, some people really want to acquire some of these homesteading yeah, skills. For like the sure. Things our grandmothers did. Right. And yeah. hypocritical carnivore was one term that came out of that class. Like, you know, don't be a hypocrite about it. Like if you want to eat, boneless skinless chicken breast then maybe learn how Start to break up. down a whole chicken or up, yeah. so I, I appreciated that piece and one of my hopes with the minneapolis meat collective is to i'm going to be at farmer's markets this summer with Good. like an ask the butcher table and have a lot of visuals and hopefully help farmers who are already at the market trying to sell their meat help consumers understand what to do with kidneys or yeah. here's where you can you know here's how you can do a whole pig roast or fit a whole roast in the oven or fit a whole roast in your freezer, whatever. Like I want to give as much information as possible to market goers in hopes to help farmers be able to sell some of those less common cuts and then also like put butchers to the front. Yeah. So people can find you on Instagram and at your website. Yeah. And if they just Google Minneapolis Meat Collective, I'm sure it'll pop your up. stuff pops up mm -hmm. and who knows when people listen to this episode so it could be right. two years from now but I you're know. still going to be offering classes and yes even I, more it'll be your full-time gig by then i know we'll see it's kind of the side hustle at the moment but yeah but i'm yeah i'm loving the, it the, like the side the side hustles tend to if you love them they tend to eclipse the main hustle for sure yeah. well thank you thanks uh, well you go shoot a deer and come back on <laughs> okay yes we'll do that okay. for sure thanks